Well, good morning. I'm excited to be here this morning because I think we have a lot in common. Anyone here think highly of the Bible? Anyone here have the Bible change your life? I think there's nothing more powerful in the universe than the Word of God. It's the Word that God spoke that uh, created the universe. Look at what Jesus did with the power of just His Word. And we have God's Word right here, living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword. I think if we release this, we can change people's lives. I think if we release this, we can change the cultures around the world. I think we can change the destiny of people's lives and their cultures. Do you? I'm so convinced of that that we've started a ministry called Crosstalk Global. Yep, next slide. <laughs> we do that because the church is growing, and I'm excited by that. When Jesus left, there were only a handful, but the church has grown and grown exponentially. Today, over 33% of the world claims to be Christian. Did you know that? For all the doom and gloom, Christianity is the largest, most dominant religion in the entire world. Praise God, wouldn't you say? Amen. And it keeps growing. Do you know that every single day, 178,000 people accept Christ as their Savior? per day. Yeah. What God's Spirit is doing around the world is truly amazing, but there is a slight problem with that. 178,000 people every day, which means we need some 7,000 pastors every single day. See, what we're finding with the world is like we find in families. Sometimes it's a easier to make babies than it is to raise them. <laughs> you know, making them is fun, but uh, um, it's raising them to full maturity, to become all that God wants them to be. That's a lot more work, and we find that with Christians. It's wonderful to run around the world and have people raise their hands, but how are they going to grow in Christ? How are they going to become spiritually mature? They need pastors to help them, and we're not keeping up. At Crosstalk Global, we are, for example, in um, Vietnam, in North Vietnam. In South, there's a lot that's happening, but in the North, it's the center of communism. It's the capital of communism. And there's been tremendous persecution. There still is all around that area. But for the first time in 60 years, the North Evangelical Vietnamese Church is allowed to train their pastors. And they've invited us to be the people to come and do that. We're going in as Crosstalk Global, working with ordinary Vietnamese pastors. Right on that compound, we know there's listening devices. Go ahead and listen. <laughs> Take notes even. It's okay. Take notes. You can, uh, we want to train you. They have almost 200,000 people in the uh, members in the North Evangelical Vietnamese Church, almost in spite of the persecution. They planted 40 churches last year. They have some almost 1,500 churches. You know how many pastors they have? 300. 300 pastors, 1,500 churches, which means many churches have never seen a pastor. When one comes to visit, <laughs> the, the village goes crazy. They go and bring everyone around. Come, we, today we have a pastor. Come, touch our pastor. It's kind of creepy, but, uh, but they've never seen a live pastor before. They were saved by radio. 
which is wonderful, but how do they grow? I think of um, the um, Ethiopian eunuch who had a Bible, and uh, he was reading it. And Philip came and said to him, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, what? Yeah, I don't, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? No one's helped them understand what the Bible means and how it applies. It's tragic. The pastors are often the, one, the only ones that own a Bible. If you own a Bible, you're the pastor. Say whatever you know. So the church is growing, but it's interesting to know where it's growing. A century ago, it was all in the global north. It was all in North America, Europe, Great Britain. That's not where the church is growing today. It's now in the global south. It's moved. Now we're in the global south. Uh, 39% are, live in the global north, but 61 live in the global south, Asia, Africa, Latin America, Oceania. That's where the church is growing, and that's where we need the pastors. And by the way, that's where we don't have training institutions. So what happens is the church is growing wide, but it is shallow. We're looking at moving into Kenya because uh, I've learned desperate plea from people there saying, people are coming to Christ and the Muslims are attacking. They're coming in not attacking with guns this time, they're attacking with false teaching. They're coming into towns and they are holding seminars for Christians to explain why Jesus is not God why they've been lied to. And they take the Bible and they teach it falsely and they twist it around to try and prove that Jesus is not God. And no one knows their Bible well enough to refute them because they have no pastors who have no training. And while we are wide, we are very shallow and there is tremendous danger. Do you know that at one point North Africa was the heart of the church in the world? And it was lost. It can be lost again. We desperately need people who understand God's Word and can release its power in where they're living. Next. To do that, we need an alternative form of education. I teach at Biola University, Talbot School of Theology. I'm glad to do that. I enjoy doing that. But if every formal training institution in the world was at 120% capacity, less than 10% of the need of the, would be met. That's not good enough, is it? We can't have 90% of the people trained by, uh, led by untrained people who don't understand how to interpret the Word and how to communicate it effectively to their own culture. We just can't do that. We need a new model. Next. That's why we invented, that's why four years ago I started Crosstalk Global with a whole different model. I am so committed to getting God's Word to the world to equip gifted, godly people all over the world to be able to understand and communicate the Bible that we've adopted a new model. First of all, it's accessible. By accessible, I'm not asking people in rural north or southern India to come to Orange County to be trained. Okay, guess why? They can't buy a plane ticket. And if they did, they couldn't get in. I know, and if they came here, they'd be ruined for their villages, wouldn't they? They'd drive around Orange County, and all they'd think is, wow, this is so much nicer than I am. They would look down at where God has placed them. I don't want them to do that. I want them to bloom where God has planted them. That's what I want. 
So I thought, well, I don't know, let's be radical. Let's go to them. Uh, I don't know, kind of like Jesus did. Incarnationally, you know, from heaven to earth. He could have mailed it in. He could have done video, but he showed up in person. Why don't we show up in person to them? And no education barriers. You try to get into seminary here, we won't let you in if you've got high school education. You've got to have more than that, right? They can't afford that. That's not even available. I kind of figure, you know, let's be radical. Jesus, he started with fishermen. Have you met a professional fisherman? I mean, they're good people, great people, but they're just ordinary folk. I think we can work with ordinary folk. If they're gifted, if they're godly, even if they only have bad communist high school education, why can't we work with them? If God has chosen them, why would we reject them? So we bring them in. We'll work with them. We're affordable. Yes, they have to pay their in-country costs. This is not a free ride. And they have to pay a culturally appropriate tuition. If, you're, if you don't have skin in the game, you're not taking this seriously. We're not paying you to come and listen. We're giving you the best education that there is, but you've got to have skin in the game. But we don't ask them to pay for North American costs. We don't ask them to pay for our travel over. We don't need, want them to pay for translation and materials and books and paper and pens because they don't have that kind of stuff. We make it affordable so money doesn't stop them from coming. We keep it practical. <laughs> I got to be honest, I'm not teaching these people everything we teach in a three-year, 98-semester hours Master of Divinity program at Talbot School of Theology. We're not teaching them all that stuff. It's good to know. Uh, because those people that have all that education, they're kind of what I call neurosurgeons. It's good to have a neurosurgeon, isn't it? Aren't you glad there's a neurosurgeon somewhere in case you need one? But how many times you've been to the neurosurgeon versus how many times you've been to a family doctor? I'm doing family practitioners. That's what we're doing. We're doing people that can meet most of the needs most of the time for most of the people. You want experts? We can call in an expert to consult. But I want to teach practical skills so they know how to interpret the Bible and how to communicate it so it changes lives. We're just keeping it real, keeping it practical. It's personal. We go in person. We work in small groups, no more than 25. We work with them. And I know people say, 25, are you kidding? I want bigger numbers. Well, I can get bigger numbers. I can get 10,000 coming together. But you can't train 10,000 people at once in a skill. I don't know if you've tried. You know, golfing lessons, 10,000 people lining up. Come on. <laughs> Dangerous. The ball's going everywhere. Nobody's learning anything. You can't do individualized argument. Start small, you'll never change the world. Oh, I don't know. Jesus did. He started with just a few disciples. Um, I, we're starting small. It's impersonal. No more than 25 people. We work with them intensively two weeks a year over three years. Peer learning, mentoring caring, relationship, and I think that'll change the world because we are reproducible. See, my goal with those 20, 25 preachers is not to make them better preachers. I mean, we do. They're the best ones in their culture. That's not my goal. My goal is as I teach them, what I'm really doing is not teaching, I'm mining for diamonds. Among those 20, 25, what I'm really looking for are the outstanding people the ones that God has gifted, that are exceptionally godly, and that are radically committed to reaching their culture for Christ. Those are the diamonds. Those are the ones I'm looking for. And usually we get about five or six. 
among all the rest. The rest are good. They have great ministries. But, but these five or six, we pour into them for another three years, giving them additional training so that at the end of that, after six years of training, then we allow them to start their own cohorts with other people from their own culture helping them. And they will find other diamonds who will find other diamonds. And we will start a movement, which I believe with the power of God's Word released will transform cultures. It's not a short-term thing. I can go over and get 100,000 people together and preach and come home with bigger numbers, but I don't want to do that because Jesus didn't really do that. He thought the way to get uh, big was to start small. But what he said was, you're not going to be alone. And this is a long-term ministry. It's not hit and run. It's long-term. When Jesus left, he said, I'm leaving because why? I'm going to send you Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And He will be with you even to the end of the age. You're never going to be alone. That's our philosophy. I thought it was a great one. I was going to copyright it until I realized Jesus said it first. It's just awful the way He keeps imitating me all the time. So we come in. We train them. Yes, they'll doing the work. We're training indigenous people to reach indigenous people, to train others. We want to start a movement which will transform their culture for Christ. But we're not going to leave them. We're going to stay and provide resources and help and encouragement, be in the background. They don't need to be in the forefront. I just want it to happen. Who cares who gets the credit? But I do know the best people to reach Vietnam are Vietnamese. The best people to reach Indians are Indians. The best people to reach Cubans are Cubans, and we're working all over the world. It's only been a few years. We started, we're working with people in Cuba. In fact, Pastor Bruce is coming this fall in October to, uh, to help us continue to work with pastors. By the way, you got, a, you got skin in this game too. Did you know that Crosspoint was the first church to ever support Crosstalk? Yeah. Uh, we're working in Cuba. We started in Oradia, Romania, and we've started, our first graduates took place this past Thanksgiving, and then we moved into Yash, northeast Romania, right by Moldova. We started a new group there. Uh, this summer, Lord willing, we'll be, uh, this fall, we'll be starting in Ukraine, far away from where the battles are, I hope. Um, uh, this summer, I was, or a month or so ago, I was in India, Delhi, India. We're partnering with an organization there to train Hindu pastors, uh, uh, pastors who are ministering in these Hindu villages. They are, uh, that's where the church is growing. In Delhi, not so much. Outside in the small villages, there's a massive movement of people towards Christ. Um, I had just three days with them in this little exploratory trip. It was so exciting to see a hundred pastors desperately eager to, to communicate God's Word. I'll be um, next week in um, Vietnam in Hanoi working with those pastors again for another two-week residency. I get home for a couple of days back to uh, um, Yangon, Myanmar, the old Rangoon, Burma. Um, that cult country has just experienced, is experiencing democracy. Things are opening up and the pastors are desperate for training. Um, later this summer, Lord willing, we'll be doing an investigative trip in Kenya because I don't want the Muslims to win. We've got to fight back and we fight back, not with <laughs> flesh and blood, but with the Word of God. There's nothing more powerful than that. If we know it and understand it and release it, we can change the destiny of cultures and people. And that's what we want to do. Uh, you may not be able to come with us. If you can, we'd be glad to have you, but you can pray. Please do that. If God's Spirit is not in this, we can't succeed. No one's smart enough to build God's kingdom. Only He can do it. Pray that God's Spirit will go ahead. If 
find us the right students, favor with the right people, that we would be able to continue this ministry. You could give. Really, the only thing that's stopping us from moving forward into even more places and making a greater impact are financial limitations. Um, we figure it costs $100 a month to train one student. $100 a month for three years trains one student all the way through. Like, I don't want to get personal, but try that against Biola tuition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I heard a mother, yes. Um, $100 a month. Whatever you can do would be, would be grateful, helpful. If, um, you can also help us tell others. If this resonates with your heart, or you know someone who would resonate with this, this is something that they'd be passionate about, could you tell them? We just love to be able to connect with people who share the passion. I love teaching at Biola. I love teaching at Talbot. I love equipping people in North America. But the church, friends, has moved. And the greatest need is where we're focusing now. I want to make the biggest difference I can make. I want to make my maximum impact for God. The years that God gives us, I think this is what God is, I know this is what God is calling us to. And we'd love you to partner with us if God so leads. Because I believe that nothing is more powerful than God's Word. It has changed our lives. It can change everyone's life. If only we understand it and communicate it. Amen? To that end, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4. As you're turning, let me ask you a question. How many of you like to go to movies? Anyone? Anyone? Oh, all kinds of people. Why do you like to go to movies? What do you like about the movies? What's that? You like stories. I love stories. The Bible's full of them. It's uh, the universal language. Every culture, everywhere we go, loves stories. No question. So we've got lots of good material. And we love stories. Yeah, what else? Why do you like to go to the movies? Popcorn. What do they put on that that makes it so good? I mean, it's not good for you, but it sure tastes good on the way down. It's, it's not been part of any diet I've been on, but it's been part of my diet, if you get what I mean, anyway. Um, but what else do you like about the movies? Entertaining. Yeah, it's fun. fun. Anything else you like about movies? Community. Yeah, you get to go with other people. Escape from? Reality, yeah, I get to enter a whole new world, experience new things, sometimes enter imagination. What else? No interruptions. No interruptions, except for the person in front of you that's texting. But other than that, it's, it's, uh, it's no interruptions. I like the big screen. I love the great sound. Um, it's fun to go on a date, a movie, right? Especially when it's first date and you don't know what you're going to talk about. <laughs> you sit there and let it happen and... You know what nobody mentioned? Nobody mentioned the credits. I mean, nobody said, you know what I like? I like when the movie's finally done. The story's over. And you have that list of names coming down. Ah, oh, that's what I like. I stay and I pay close attention, you know. Uh, you know, look at the, the, that person's the key grip, the not-so-key grip the set designer, the assistant set designer, the assistant assistant set designer, 
This is Tom Cruise's assistant. This is Tom Cruise's assistant, 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 chauffeur. You know, like those are the things that anyone love to read all the credits? Anyone? 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 Uh, I think someone's lying. Or you're a member of the Screen Actors Guild. Are you a member of the Screen Actors Guild? Okay. They, I learned that they have to watch them. It's their obligation for being part of the guild. Um, most, most of us, we don't like to, to read the credits. <laughs> I don't like to read the credits in movies. I wonder why they're there. The same thing could be said of the book of Colossians. I mean, did you look at the passage we're preaching today? Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. You know what these are? These are credits. I mean, he mentions these names. You know, I, yeah, I like Pastor Bruce. I thought I liked Pastor Bruce. <laughs> Says to me, I'm going away, and my parents, yeah, that's great, you know, I'll be wonderful. Can I get you to come in? And this is the only weekend I could fit in for a long time. I got, I got Sunday morning. I got to catch a plane late this afternoon, but, I, but I've got this morning. I'd be glad to come. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to agree to it. And then I look at the passage you gave me. I thought this guy was my friend. I mean, he's got the movie. I, I got the credits. He gives me the credits at the end. What am I supposed to do with these credits? I mean, if this was a meal, I mean, the book of Colossians would be a marvelous meal, wouldn't it? I mean, look at this. I mean, it starts with a wonderful appetizer. He starts by thanking God for the church of Colossae, and he tells them all the reasons why they're an exceptional church and how he's praying to support them. Oh, that's my kind of church. And he wants you, wants you to dig into the main course. Now you, your appetite's wet. The main course comes by, and, and then he digs in. He, Jesus, he talks about Jesus. Oh, man, give me that one, Bruce, will you? He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven, visible and invisible. Oh, man, let me sink my, sink my teeth into that steak. Give me that one. Or if you won't give me that one, Bruce, g give me what's following. I mean, look, look at this. He says, uh, I rejoice for what I am, um, the sufferings that I'm filling up in Christ's sufferings. Christ had to return to heaven. He resurrected, went back to heaven. So he wasn't able to physically come to every person, but, but I'm making up for what he couldn't do personally. I am his representative, his ambassador, going from person to person, sharing the gospel. And as I do, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Come on, Bruce, give me that one. If I can't have the steak, give me the potatoes, will you? I mean, this is crosstalk. I mean, I want to talk about presenting Christ, preaching the gospel to present people mature in Christ. That's like my theme verse in life. No, I can't have that one. I can't even have the veggies. No, the plate. He took the veggies too, you know. Hey, don't pollute the gospel. Keep it pure. And then for those of you who think, oh, I'd never do that, he shows the subtle ways that the gospel can be changed from grace to works and and then we come to dessert. Well, dessert's pretty good. I mean, this is where in chapter 3 and following, he's talking about how we can apply this in our everyday life. How does, how does the gospel we know, the Christ that we love, how does, how does our understanding of them change how we live our lives? And he even goes into relationships we have with our bosses, with our wives, with our kids. I mean, it's, it's great stuff, but he took all that too. And then, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, he's talking about his prayer for all of them, a final prayer. That's like the coffee at the end of the meal. He took that, didn't he? 
And he leaves me the, the credits at the end. He leaves me the credits. You know what those are like? Those are like the crumbs after the meal is over. Someone's finished off the appetizer and the main course and the dessert and the coffee's gone and there's little crumbs and we kind of, he's asking me to pick up the crumbs, put it together, maybe add some salt or something and can you serve that? Well, thanks, Bruce. I hope you're having an airy weekend. I thought you were my friend. You're leaving me with credits. You keep the movie. You give me the credits. And frankly, it makes me wonder why is it even is it here? I mean, why do we even need credits? I mean, when you're doing a small group Bible study, you skip this stuff, right? Let's move on to the next one. I mean, we know, Paul says to Timothy, that all Scripture is what? God breathed and profitable for teaching, rebuke, and training in righteousness. Do we believe that? Yeah, but not this part. I mean, this part, this is, this is just the credits. I mean, that's not really, we can, this is really, really, this is what I got? I mean, look at this stuff. He leaves me with Tychicus. Onesimus. Well, at least I heard of him. Uh, Aristic, Arist, Aristarchus. Oh, that, there's, a, there's an important guy. Um, Epaphras. Um, Luke, I heard of him. Demas. Um, my brothers at Laodicea. And to Nympha and her church in her house. Great. We're now down to small group leaders. So what do you do with that? Why would God inspire this? Why is it necessary? How is it profitable? Well, it may help to know a little bit about the context. Paul, as you know, is uh, one of the greatest missionaries of all time. I mean, he was, uh, met the resurrected Christ. He gave him his ministry to the Gentiles. He's gone all around the world, known world, planting churches. And, and uh, on this particular journey, he was in Jerusalem doing exactly what God called him to do. And as he's presenting Christ, the Jews understandably got upset about Jesus talking about Christ and began to accuse him falsely. He ended up before Felix in the court, of the Roman court, and, and they made accusations back and forth. And while Paul does that, the those opportunities to promote Christ. He thought things were turning against him, so he appealed to go to Rome. <laughs> as soon as he did that, he got put on a boat. That didn't go so well, did it? Got caught in a bad storm, um, shipwrecked. They almost died. He had to try and save them. The, the sailors on the boat were going to kill him if someone hadn't intervened. I mean, they thought he would escape. I mean, it was, it was a terrible situation. And then he ends up in Rome, in prison. For two full years. He says over and over again, remember me, I am in chains. Chains means you can't move. You can't do what you want. He would have loved to be out leading people to Christ. He would have loved to have been able to continue to plant churches and touch lives with the gospel, but he couldn't do that. He was in chains. He wrote inspired scripture, to be sure, but, but there's more that he wanted to do, and he couldn't do it. 
And so he has to use others. He tells the church in Colossae, I, I can't do this alone. So Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the word, in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He's saying to him, I'd love to be with you, but I can't. I'd love to encourage you as I have in the past, but circumstances won't allow it. And, and so I need to send this dear brother to do that. I am placing my reputation in his hands. He will represent you to me. I could write it, but I don't know how to write it. What would, you, what would Paul write? Yes, I am in prison, but I am faithful, writing inspired sacred literature. I am, no, that's arrogant. You can't write that. He's not an arrogant man. He will tell Timothy that he is the chief of all sinners. He can't write those words. That, that would not be appropriate. But neither could he tell them about the times that were difficult for him in prison, times when he was depressed. I mean, imagine you're Paul. Peter got in prison too, right? Right? How long was he in prison? Not quite overnight. Prison break. He gets out, leads the jailer and everyone to Christ. Paul's going, okay, I've been here a night, two nights, three nights, three months, six months, nine months, one year, two years. Prison break. Come on. Do you think he got depressed? Think he got discouraged? Do you think he ever began to wonder like John the Baptist near the end of his life? Are you really the one? You can't share those things with people. He takes his reputation and says, you know, if you really want to know the true scoop, I place my reputation in the hands of Tychicus. He'll tell you. I can't do it. I need his help. <laughs> How vulnerable. You know that people always believe others more than you believe your, they believe you, right? How's your job going? Oh, I'm amazing. I'm the greatest salesperson. Yeah, yeah. Everyone discounts that by 60%. They want to ask your coworkers. They want a 360 review. You don't ask the mechanic how good he is. You ask the mechanic's customers, right? You want to know what others think. You know we listen to others more than we listen to the person that uh, is, uh, it involves because that's, uh, <laughs> that's Yelp. We read the reviews. Come on, when you're on Amazon, you buy a product, don't you look down and see who endorsed this or who didn't like it? It's very important to us what others think. Your reputation, if you're a small business owner, rests in the comments that are there, right? That's where it rests. Paul says, I can't go. I have to, I need the resources of Tychicus to tell you fully the situation I'm in so you can respond accordingly. And then he says he's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, uh, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. Onesimus, you know him. Who is he? What was he before this? He was a slave. But he did what? He ran away. He's a fugitive. He was wanted by the Romans. If they found him, they'd arrest him. 
He was a man who was a, a deep sinner. He was a felon. Paul reached out and touched him with the gospel. Paul says, this is my, these people will describe me. Tychicus with his words, he will explain, and Onesimus with my life, with his life. This is the fruit of my work. This is like a painter that says, not let me describe with my words how I paint, but let me show you my painting. Onesimus, this is his painting. This is what my ministry looks like in real life in a person. I want you to see that so you'll understand me. My reputation is their hands. I can't come. I need them. I can't do what I need, what I need to do without their help. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. <laughs> I want you to know that um, my support group are fellow prisoners. That's all I have here. But I mention them because they're valuable. I mention them because when I'm stuck here in this prison in chains, they're the ones that can minister to me. I need others. I, I'm not alone. I, I can't be self-sufficient. It's not enough by myself. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ, Jesus sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you, for those at Laodicea and Heropolis. How does he know that he's working hard for them? Because I think that the prayers were not only being said for others, they were being said for Paul. I think Paul knew the benefit of this man's prayers. I need other people to speak for me. I need other people to live for me. I need people to provide fellowship for me. I need people to pray for me like you need people to pray for you. I know I'm Paul. I know I've seen the risen Christ. I know that I've done planted churches all over the world and everyone is in awe of the name of Paul, but I am just a man. And I can't do it alone. Look at what he says. Verse 14, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas sends greetings. Oh, isn't it good to have a Luke? Someone who comes and travels with you. Someone who leaves their profession behind in order to build into your life. That's a friend. This is like one of David's mighty men, right? I care about you so much. I will sacrifice myself, my career, my life to help advance you. Oh, man. Paul had that. Paul is thankful for that, aren't we? And give my greetings to the brothers of Laodicea, to Nympha, the church in her house. Don't you hear in those words a longing? A longing I wish, I wish I was back in that small group meeting in her house. She makes the nicest cookies. The tea is amazing. The fellowship to just sit around without instruments and sing a chorus of praise to Christ. How wonderful that would be. I long for that. I need that. 
What Paul is saying here is, is that we can't live the Christian life alone. Do you see that? No one's adequate. It's the, it's the difficulty of living in our American culture that we have this cult of individualism. We think that I, myself, and I, I am self-sufficient. We watch the cowboy movies. The guy riding alone on his trusty steed, I need nobody. That's a myth. Nobody survives alone. Nobody. Not even the cowboy. He goes to town or he'd die. He needs others. Paul says we need others. Didn't he write about that in 1 Corinthians 12? We're all one body. Yes, I have an important part. Yes, God has called me to minister, just like he's called you. But I need the body of Christ. I can't do it alone. I need others to help me. I need others to help. And really, even as Americans, that should have dawned on us. Because the Bible is all about community. I mean, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, and then he made a man. And later, God said, um, oops. Right? I think that's the only time in Hebrew it says oops. That's a marginal reading, but, you know. Um, any of you have seen a, uh, all men's dorm? know that it's right, that it's not right for men to be alone. <laughs> they need a woman. We need community. I need to make a helper for him. You cannot live in isolation. You need someone with you. God called Abraham, but he didn't call Abraham alone. He called Abraham to become what? The father of what? A nation. As a nation, these people will represent me. In community, they will represent me. And in the New Testament, it forms the church. The, the church, there's no concept in the New Testament of individualized Christianity. It's always in the context of a local church. Always. You cannot grow in Christ without the help of others. Paul knows that. The New Testament teaches us, and the future will reveal it. Because when we get to heaven... We're not going to have individualized apartments. We're going to gather around the marriage supper of the Lamb, the biggest family table ever, with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we're going to gather together in community and worship the God who made us a people. Once we were not a people, but in Christ, we are a people. We are a people. And Paul, not knowing what's going to happen with his life, looks back and says, the only reason I could do what I have done, the only reason I am doing what I'm doing is because of others. And these are the people that have and are building into my life. Have you had people build into your life? who you are, what you're doing, does it, does it stem from what others have done for you? Certainly mine has. <laughs> I remember, I remember Rudy Isaac. You've never heard of Rudy Isaac. He was a, 
science teacher. I hated science. Back in high school, I hated science. But he was a great guy. He was the one who was the um, sponsor of the InterVarsity group in the high school. He came to me and asked if I would be president of the group the next year. I was astonished. Why would anyone expect me to give any kind of leadership to the things of God? He saw something I never did. He changed my life. I think of Mel Shiresky. <laughs> You've never heard of Mel Shiresky either. A small church pastor up in Canada where I was living. And he was not a very good preacher. He was a great pastor. He, he came to our home for a visit. No pastor had ever come to our home. He loved us enough to visit us. His love was incarnational. Wow. Uh, one day I talked to him and I was thinking of transferring schools to our denominational school to look at formal min pastoral ministry. And, and he said to me, so how's it going with your application? And I said, not very well. And he said, why? I said, the registrar. Reg they're all the same, by the way, registrars. Every school, they're all the same. The word that comes most e easily off their lips is no. I was looking, will you take this course? Will you take this course? Can I transfer in? No, 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 no. Yes is harder. It's three letters. No is only two. It's easy. He got angry. He said, you come into my office. He came in on his day off on a Monday. He phoned, back in those days, long distance out to the school. He had my copy of my transcripts in front of him. He got the register on the phone. He said, have you got this guy's transcripts in front of you? Yes. He said, okay, let's go through these courses. Let me tell you which ones I think you should accept in. And he went through, and he fought for me. He advocated for me. He got all my courses accepted. And he hung up the phone. He says, now are you going? And I said, yes, sir. <laughs> he changed my life. I think of Haddon Robinson. It was voted as one of the North America's most outstanding preachers, one of the ten best preachers in all of America. Why would he care about me? But he did. We got to work together. When we couldn't find a home, he said, you can stay in my basement. He mentored me. He taught me. There was a time when we were implementing changes to try and reach new people in the seminary, and people were upset that we would allow others in that they didn't fit, fit the categories. And he said, you will not touch Kent. You will have to fire me if you touch him. Who does that for you? I could never have done anything, never accomplished what I did without him. I did it, but only with his help. I think of um, a man named Perrin Prescott. You've never heard of him. He lives in New Hampshire. He's got a pump business. He's on our executive board for Crosstalk Global. <laughs> A couple of weeks ago, I was in New England and um, doing a seminar event, and there was a major donor who was coming to check us out, and he said, I'm going to come and help. I'm going to come and sit at the table, and I'm going to relate to them and explain to them and tell them how much I respect you and like you and why this is worthy of their time and money. But see, what you don't know is that Perrin Prescott has advanced cancer. It's very aggressive. 
He's nauseous all the time. His body temperature explodes with heat, and he's just suddenly sweating, and then he's freezing, and he says, I don't care about that. I want to come because I care about you and what you're doing. He built into my life. None of us do it alone. Do you know that? That's not what Paul is saying. Yes, I've done things, but I've only done things because of the support of others, because I'm part of a body, because others have built into my life. Others have built into your life, have they not? Where are you today? Where are you in your career? Where are you in your Christian life? Where are you in your ministry? Did you get there alone? Are you some kind of cowboy that says, it's all about me and I didn't need or no one else touched or got me there? Did you do it alone? Or are there people who you could give credit to? Who built into your life? In your imagination, do you see their, do you see their faces? That gallery of people who loved you enough to advocate for you, to pray for you, to travel with you through life's journeys. See, what, what Paul is telling us here is that these credits matter. The reason why he ends this with credits is not because he couldn't think of anything else to say. It's because he thought of something he must say. The reason there are credits is because there are people we have to give credit to. We have to say thank you to. We owe them. You owe them. And perhaps today you can, like Paul, begin to say thank you. Perhaps like Paul, you can begin to give credit where credit is due. In your bulletin, there's a postcard. Did you see it? says, thank you. On the back, it's blank. You need to say thank you. Perhaps even right now, you want to write thank you to someone who was built into your life. Paul did. He knew he needed to. And I think right now, you know you need to. Tell someone thank you for what they've done. If the person that you're writing this note to is local, can I suggest something? Fill it out, write it out, and then take them for coffee. Tell them in person, like Paul wanted to do but couldn't do because of his chains. You're not in chains. You can do that. Go to them, tell them, thank them, and hand them a note. I think it would mean the world to them would help them and help you to know about giving to others and helping them. Because it's not about us and our kingdom. It's about Him and His kingdom. Others help us and we help them. Right? So next week, <laughs> can you do me a second favor? Can you thank Bruce for me? I mean, I know he's in Mexico having a great time. <clears throat> and he left me with Colossians chapter 4, 7 and following. 
But thank him for me. Because I think we learned something. That none of us does accomplish anything for God alone. We do it because of and through the help of others as well. Amen.